Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Paul Nepper, and today I'll be talking to Jeffrey Garak, author of the new book, Marty Glickman, The Life of an American Jewish Sports Legend. Jeffrey is a professor of Jewish history at Yeshiva University. And he has written or edited 25 books, including the award-winning Jews in Gotham. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure always to speak about the Marty Glickman. It's become very much part of my life, both as a professional historian, but also as a great fan of his. Uh, I can say that I'm 74 years old, and I grew up, and he was the voice of my youth. Uh I tell the, the, a number of stories in the book, but one that sticks out to me is you, uh, your listeners might know the, uh, the, the movie Network where Howard Beale gets up and opens the window and says, I'm mad as hell and I won't take it anymore. So I got a Marty Glickman version. One, one afternoon, he's broadcasting a giant game and it's a very close game. And he says to the audience, ladies and gentlemen, open your windows in your apartments and tenements. And yell, go Giants, go, go Giants, go. So I must have been nine or ten years old. I opened the window. I start screaming, go Giants, go. My father says to me, what in the world are you doing? I said, Marty Glickman told me to go, go Giants, go. So I'm yelling, go Giants, go. So that's just one of the things that Marty Glickman was important to me growing up. When I played basketball on the street and I made a basket, I went swish, swish, because Marty Glickman said swish. Long before Marv Albert, his prime disciple, said yes, or Iron Eagle, who was one of Mar- one of Marv Albert's disi- uh, disciples, said book it, or Mike Breen said uh, bang, uh, they were all based upon their teacher, and that's Marty Glickman. So that was also very much part of uh, that experience. Uh, one other quick story. When, when I was thinking about doing this book, the book has two components to it. First, it's a sports book, but it's also, and we'll talk about this later on, 
a book about American Jewish history, about the life of a second-generation American Jew who tries to make it in the American world and all the difficulties that he faced. In any event, a few years ago, a friend of mine told me the story that he was driving one afternoon on the Sawmill River Parkway, which is north of the Bronx, and I, I'm from the Bronx. I sound like someone from the Bronx. And he's in Westchester. And the Giants are playing a game. And the game is close. Two-minute warning. And Glickman says, if you're within the sound of my voice, pull off the road. I don't want to cause any accidents. <laughs> I, I thought my friend was making it up until I read a memoir written by Mike Burke. You might recall that Mike Burke for a while was the owner or president of the Yankees. Yeah. He said, I was driving on the Song River Parkway, and Marty Glickman said, pull off the road, and people are pulling off the road. And then I interviewed a fellow named Dave Cohen, who for a while was broadcasting Yankee games, and he told me a comparable story. He said uh, he was on Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn, bumper-to-bumper traffic, and he's in the left lane, and Marty says, pull off the road. So he weaved his way across three lanes, so he could do what Marty Glickman told him. So that that's the power of his voice as far as that's concerned. And, you know, not only that, as a kid, uh, I used to listen to Marty Glickman under the covers with a transistor radio to listen to his broadcasts uh, long into the night. So those are the types of things that Marty Glickman, you know, meant. You know, I've interviewed people who say, one of the great things about Marty Glickman was that for New York kids was that he broadcasted on Channel 11, WPIX-TV, um, high, high school football games, okay? And the reason he did it was, and when he did these games at halftime, he didn't interview the coaches or the players. He interviewed the head of the pep squad or the GO president or the newspaper editor, because he wanted to tell New Yorkers at a time where a lot of kids were seen as juvenile delinquent, and this is a time where, you know, Lennon Bernstein does West Side Story, but gangs in New York, right? There's so many wonderful kids in the city, and Monique Lickman wants to give back to New York, you know, a lot of what uh, New York meant, uh, meant to him. So, I don't want to belabor the whole time we're talking, just to say part number one of the book is if you read the book, you will see, you will, evo I evoke memories of this time period. And although I like people of all backgrounds and ages to read it, the fact of the matter is people of my generation, people who grew up with Glickman, love the book because they have this story. One of my friends said, he used to play Sandlot football. And when he'd say, I went to it, I, I ran to a couple or three yards, Marty Glickman's intonation. Okay. So uh, he, this kid thought for a moment that he was Alex Webster. You know, we used to have football in New York City. We used to have football. Oh, we have the Jets and the Giants right now in 2023. They're playing, but they're not particularly good. I'm very happy that Marty's not around to see how poorly <laughs> the Giants are playing. Because he was he was a fan, he was a New Yorker, and, and for Jewish fans, I should point out, although he spoke to all ethnic groups, every once in a while he would throw in Yiddish terminology into the broadcast. 
You know, this Meshuggah ran for 20 years. <laughs> so if you're a Jewish fan, he's one of our guys, you know, one of our guys who is so important in terms of New York history. New York history. And, uh, you know, plus, as I mentioned a moment ago, so many of the great broadcasters today were disciples of Marty Glickman. And towards the end of his life, he was Professor Glickman, where he taught sports broadcasting um, at Fordham University, which, as I look out my window, is about uh, eight miles away from where I'm speaking to you now from uh, Bucolic, Riverdale, New York. So that's one aspect of the book. Yeah, and and and, and we'll get into. I, I mean, it's 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 unbelievable the list of people that that you know of mentees he had, and uh, and of course Fordham University has produced a number of great announcers. I know uh, Mike Mike Breen, Michael Kay, right, uh, on and on. Well, they're uh, a little younger. They're, they're a little younger, but they're part right. of the, every year. Fordham University, I believe, gives an award to the top broadcasting student called the Marty Glickman Award. So that's that's very, 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 very powerful. Listen, in terms of the people he influenced, he mentored, there's a chapter called Marty as Mentor. So he taught, we know about Marv Albert and we know about um, Bob Costas. Mm -hmm. Very few people may know that uh, about Gail Serens, who was the first woman to broadcast a NFL game. She was a disciple of Marty Glickman. And then it's Beth Malwins. A few weeks ago, I was watching the football game, and there she was. She was broadcasting the game. But my favorite story about someone he influenced as an announcer was his relationship with Bill Walton. Bill Walton. Yeah, I told you. I talked to, I talked to Bill about that. I talked to Bill for a project I'm working on, and he brought up Marty. Right. So you know the connection between Marty. Well, I bet I, I'll tell your audience, right? So first of all, when, when I did this research, what I did first is I sent emails to many broadcasters. My name is Jeff Gura. I'm a professor of American Jewish history. I'm at Yeshiva University, and I have a contract for this book. And I write in big, in big letters, and I'm not looking for any money from you, okay? If you want to talk to me about Blickman, please get back. So if you're not interested, you never respond. But so many guys got back to me and said, I want, to, I want to be in the book, okay? So Walton tells the following story. He says, and today he's a color commentator. He's won some Emmy Awards, right? He has a distinctive style, that's to be, to be sure. So Walton says, you might not know this, but Glickman, this little guy, Glickman, was one of the most important people in my life, almost as important as John Wooden. John Wooden is a great coach. Okay. So he gets back to me immediately and says, Gurup, we got to talk. Takes a while for us to connect. But anyway, so he said, I said, why was Glickman so important? He says, because you may not know this, but it came out in that HBO special about him that he stuttered and stammered and never did interviews. So did Marty Glickman as a kid. So when Glickman, and so he influenced him, worked with him, and now he's a great broadcaster. When, when Glickman died in 2001, some obituary writer interviewed John Wooden and said, well, what do you think of Glickman? He says, he was okay, just okay. And the great punchline is, he says, he taught Walton to speak, and now he never shuts up. <laughs> So when I tell audiences about this, and I've been speaking a lot about it, you know, uh, 
I, I love the Bill Walton story. And for me as a sports fan, and I'm also a scholar, but as a sports fan, to pick up the phone and say, Professor Gurov, this is Bill Walton, was uh, you know, a very exciting thing. So Absolutely. as a, you know, just so much fun. Oh, yeah. I want, I want to, you know, I, I like how you explained it. Basically, it, the, the book is, it's two things. It's a sports book, but it's also, you know, very much about the Jewish experience in, in, in the United States in the 20th century. Right. And, and I want to start off with Marty's childhood. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what his childhood was like in New York City and, and what role Judaism played in that, in that childhood. Okay. Well, he, he defined himself as a cultural Jew. He was not, he he personally was not very ritually observant. But let's go back a step. He he's born in the Bronx, but he grows up in Brooklyn during the interwar period in Flatbush, which was a predominantly Jewish neighborhood. And he's friendly with the uh, Italians, the Germans, the Irish in the neighborhood. Doesn't experience much anti-Semitism if at all. Uh, in fact, I write that he lived in a religious ethnic cocoon. There are no blacks in his neighborhood. Your audience should know that New York was heavily segregated that time. And he's living a very happy life as a second generation American Jew. As far as his uh, adherence to Jewish traditions, he does have a bar mitzvah. Um, he knows a few words by rote. His family, and I've written about this in other contexts, they have a semi-kosher home, which means no pork, no shellfish, but they had one set of dishes. He writes this, and he wrote three memoirs. I read all three memoirs, so he talks about that. If he wanted a real kosher meal, he went across the hall to his grandparents. A wonderful metaphor for understanding the connection of second-generation Jews to their tradition. So that's step number one. He's a terrific athlete as a kid. His, his dad was a good athlete. In fact, uh, the, store, the family legend is, which is probably true, before the family fled Romania, his father is in a, re in a race in his school, and he's the fastest kid, and he wins the race, and they give the trophy not to him, but to the son of the mayor. He gets three pennies, and that really bothers his father. Little does the family know that many years later, his son, Marty Glickman, will have a much more terrible experience when he goes to Berlin to Hitler's game. But just to, to uh, address your question, he's living in a Jewish neighborhood, very comfortable. He goes to James Madison High School. Uh, a few years later, Chuck Schumer will go there. A few years later, um, a few other important uh, New York Jews. Anyway, it's 80% Jewish. Most of the kids are Jewish. Everything's fine. He's a great football player. In fact, there are two great Jewish players in Brooklyn at that point. Marty Glickman and Sid Luckman. In 1935, they play for the Brooklyn Football High School Championship in Ebbets Field. In front of 20,000 fans, that's how big football was, high school football was at that point. It's so big that the game is recorded and it becomes part of a newsreels which are played all over the country. So he's a great runner and he's a great football player. 
he claims, although I couldn't verify this, that 14 schools were after him, including Columbia University and others, to come to their schools. But he ends up going to Syracuse University. And now he's entering a very different world. And again, when I write about sports, and this is very important, okay? When I write about sports, I'm not so interested in who wins or loses the game. I'm interested in exploring what it means to be a Jewish athlete or a minority athlete in America. Questions of acceptance, questions of tolerance. And I have to tell you that 50 years ago, when I was a graduate student at Columbia, when I studied African-American history, and your, your constituency will understand this, I had a black professor, a great professor, who said, for minority groups, Wars and sports are community-defining situations. In other words, if you're allowed to play for your team, your city, your club, your college, your nation, or fight for your nation, it's a sign that you are accepted. And of course, for him, the metaphor was Jack Roosevelt Robinson, 1947, two years before the United uh, Harry S. Truman desegregates the, the armed forces. Anyway. He goes to Syracuse. Why does he go to Syracuse? Because a group of Jewish fraternity brothers, and this is very important, they're part of the, Sa the Sammies, S-A-M fraternity, one of the largest, most famous Jewish fraternities, have this dream, a quixotic dream, that they bring a great athlete, great Jewish athlete, to Syracuse. And this will mitigate the social anti-Semitism that Jewish students face on campus. If you think this has some resonance with 2023, it does as well. So there are quotas against Jews at Syracuse. Jews can't be in Gentile fraternities or sororities. So Glickman goes to Syracuse, and he does a great job as a football player and runner, but he, and he skates away from this. I say, I, I know about five words of Latin. He's persona non grata auteris causa, which means person not wanted, but would on it completely. But it doesn't change things for Jews in Syracuse. So if you're studying the phenomenon of social anti-Semitism in America, which so many scholars have done, I say, use the sports metaphor. He's accepted because he's a great. So how's he doing so far? Everything's great, right? Everything's great. Brooklyn, James Madison, he's accepted in uh, at, at Syracuse. And he qualifies for the American Olympic team. He's a sprinter. He gets to Germany. When he gets to Germany, these are Hitler's games, right? When he gets off the boat, his first experiences are terrific. He gets to the Olympic village, and there are Nazi guards there, and they salute him, and he salutes them. They speak German. He knows enough Yiddish. I mentioned before, and he'll speak Yiddish. Right. His, right. He knows, they know him as an American athlete. I've got a picture of him having lunch with Glenn, uh, one, one of the great American brothers. I'm having a senior moment of, with what, what the heck's his name. Anyway, he's accepted. Okay. Not only that, there's a funny story. He and Herman Goldberg, who is a Jew on the baseball team, that had an exhibition game in Berlin, wasn't a real, real Olympic game, 
Okay. Um, uh, and by the way, the game was so boring for the German fans, they walked out. Okay. But Herman Goldberg's on the team. They hitch a ride to the Olympic Stadium with a lieutenant in the Wehrmacht. And this guy's thrilled that he's got two American athletes. When they finish the ride, he says, can I, can I have your autograph? So they scribble Goldberg and Glickman because they're afraid of how it's playing on the, uh, uh, in the mind of this Nazi or this German officer. Everything's going great until what he calls the, the meeting, the meeting. A day before the race, two days before his 18th birthday, in walk the coaches for the American team. And they say, we heard a rumor that the Germans have been hiding some great sprinters. This is going to be the last event in the Olympics. Four by 100 meter relay race in front of 80,000 fans, including Adolf Hitler, Herbert Goering, and others, right? Uh, and Goebbels. We, we want to win this race. So Glickman, you're out. And Sam Stoller, the other Jewish athlete, you're out. You're being replaced by, by the way, the runner was Glenn Cunningham. I mentioned him. He's having, okay. Yeah. Okay. My mind worked again. Great. It's good to do that. Anyway, you guys are out. Jesse Owens and Ralph Metcalf, you replaced them. Uh, Owens already has three gold medals. He gets up and says, hey, wait a minute. I got three gold medals. I don't need a fourth. I'm tired. Let these Jewish boys run. And he's told, sit down and shut up. Sit down, boy, and shut up. That's how African-Americans were referred to. And that's how athletes were treated by their coaches. So these guys never get a chance to run. So why did they do it? Because your audience should know that these coaches are being influenced and led by Avery Grundage. Don't forget that name. Avery Grundage is the head of the American Olympic Committee. And I say this with a high degree of passion. Who is an American Nazi? There's no question about it. Who's a friend of the Nazis? And he doesn't want to embarrass Adolf Hitler. The fact that Hermann Goldberg is playing baseball, could care, they could care less. The fact that there were Jews on the basketball team, basketball was no big deal, could care less. But to have a Jew win a gold medal in front of 80,000 people, no can do. So now, Avery Brundage. 36 years later, Avery Brundage is the head, not of the American Olympic Committee, but the International Olympic Committee. And as you may know, you should know, and I hope you know, in 1972, 11 Israeli athletes are murdered by Palestinian terrorists. And Avery Brundage says, we'll have one day of mourning, and then the games must go on. So that's Brundage in 36, Brundage in 72. And then last year on my vacation, I read a wonderful uh, biography of Jim Thorpe by David Marinus, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. And he points out that in 1912, when Jim Thorpe wins his gold medals in Stockholm games, he stripped them his medals because he's accused, perhaps correctly, of violating the amateur rule uh, by playing some a little bit of semi-pro baseball. Who's involved in this? The young Avery Brundage, 1912, 1936, 1972. You know what? If you ask me why did I write this darn book, 
Well, one of the reasons I want people to know what the status of Jews was and other minorities during that time period. Now, Glickman was clear to say that this was not a Holocaust story. This is a prequel, but it says a lot about status. And uh, one other thing about Jesse Owens, uh, after the Olympics, Owens comes back to New York and he is... Um, He's, he's going to be honored in the Waldorf Astoria, a big celebrity dinner for the Olympic team after a, a parade down Fifth Avenue. When he gets there, he's told, we're honoring you, but you have to go up the back of the freight elevator. Says a lot about status during this, during this time period. So for me, this becomes an important story. Oh, and there's so many other things to say. Uh, how does the media the general and Jewish media treat this. Well, the general media is caught up with anti-Grunger's feelings because he's very nasty to a female swimmer who commits the terrible of sin of hosting a cocktail party on the SS Manhattan on the way to Berlin. The story of Stoller and Blickman is the third or fourth story, and the Jewish media, the newspapers of that time, do not emphasize the fact that Glickman and Stoller were sidelined, as I call that chapter, sidelined in Berlin. And in fact, one of the newspapers says that it's really great that Glickman took this abuse like a man, says something about the passivity of American Jews. So you see, I'm not talking sports. I'm talking American Jewish history. When he comes back to, he comes, last story about overt anti-Semitism. He goes back to New York, and he's getting ready to go to Syracuse. He's invited by the New York Athletic Club, the non-New Yorkers. That's this great, it was this great WASP athletic preserve due south of Central Park. He wants to go to work out. He gets to the door, and the director says, Marty, you can't come in. Marty says, hey, wait a minute. I I'm, a, I'm an Olympic athlete, but you're a Jew, and Jews can't come in. And this is another experience for him. And although it's not in the book, I've been telling my audience a family story. My dad, whose picture is up on the wall right here, you can't see it, was a wrestler, an amateur wrestler. He used to go nuts when my brother and I would watch professional wrestling. That's not really wrestling, okay? He wrestled for the 92nd Street Warren. And he wrestled under an assumed name, by the way. He called himself Jack Austin. I don't know why he chose Jack Austin, but I do know he didn't want his parents to know that he was wrestling, okay? They wrestle against the, the New York AC, and we had in our home what we called the purloined towel. He stole a towel from the New York Athletic Club as symbolic, this is close as he could get to be in the New York AC. Sadly, my parents are long gone, when they died, we couldn't find that towel. But growing up, towel was there. Again, it says a lot about the status of Jews during that uh, particular time period. And there's so many other aspects to this, this type. Oh, towards the end of his life, when Glickman becomes famous, the New York AC begs him. They beg him to become a member, which he refuses. But he does attend the dinner where in front of, and by then... The New York AC is admitting Jews, African-Americans, and women. He gets up and he says, I just want you to know 
why I'm not accepting membership in the uh, New York AC. I want the world to know what happened. So for me, this is Marty Glickman, not only as a sportscaster, an athlete, but also a teacher. And I'm using that as a way of teaching about the American Jewish history. And you know, from reading the book, there are other aspects of his life that also resonate in terms of his lack of acceptance. Yeah, uh, you know, you, you talked about, um, you talked about, of course, how how the press covered covered Marty's exclusion from from running the race. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about his silence on it. I mean, he he you know attributed it to you know vaguely attributed it to politics. Um, and, and, and didn't didn't it, it was many years before he expressed his belief that he was excluded because of his religion. Right, right. It's the most controversial and in some respects the most interesting part of that story, namely the fact that it took a long time for Marty to say what actually happened to him and then curse out Avery Brundage by name, etc. What do I do with this? Well, first of all, the turning point for him is many years after the Berlin incident where he's invited back to Berlin because the, one of the networks is doing a documentary on uh, Jesse Owens. And he goes to the stadium and he walks in to this empty stadium that 80,000 empty seats. And he looks up and he sees the box where Hitler sat with Goering and Goebbels and these other bums. And he has this moment where he says, I'm here, we're here, you're no longer here. But why was he quiet? I suggest to you, that again, I'm using his life as a metaphor that American Jews in the 30s, 40s, and even after World War II were very reticent about calling out anti-Semitism for what it was. He wanted to advance in America. There were barriers for him advancing, and he believed that people were not interested in listening to him. You know, I'm very concerned about things today for American Jews, but American Jews today speak out. By the time, he, as he gets older, he real and, and the 1972 Olympics, by the way, are a searing moment for him, where he, uh, for example, he I talked about his mentoring of, of athletes and people. Well, one of his mentors who wasn't a Jew was Chris Schenkel. You may recall Chris Schenkel was a national broadcaster. And he's very angry that Chris Schenkel, right at, at the conclusion of the Olympics, talks about how wonderful the world is, how wonderful the Olympics are. Well, what about the 11 Jewish athletes who were murdered, the 11 Israeli athletes who were murdered? So he begins to realize that he's got a bigger story, and he's now talking in an era where, thank goodness, Jews are not afraid to speak out about anti-Semitism, and he hooks, he's hooked up with the U.S. Holocaust Museum, and he travels the country uh, al along with others. Jesse Owens is gone by then to talk about anti-Semitism, the prequel for the Holocaust, and all of these things that, that I got. So it took him a while, but I think it he behaves the way his generation of Jews behaved when they confronted uh, anti-Semitism. The other thing about his problem with 
non-acceptance is that one of his great dreams as a broadcaster was to be a nationally recognized broadcaster to do what we call the game of the week. And when the NBA was established, first it was called the BAA, the Basketball Associates of America. He was involved as the broadcaster. When the NBA took over, he was told that, you know what? Marty Glickman, not going to play well in Peoria, that metaphor, okay? And by the way, they want him to change his name from Marty Glickman to uh, Marty Manning or Marty Mann. So he never gets a chance until very late in his life through HBO and other things to be this national broadcaster. And you know what? The saddest part of the story is that the people who sidelined him are uh, Maurice Pavlov and Haskell Cohen, two Jews who are the leaders of the NBA who think that the game is the game is too Jewish. The other thing that was wrong with Marty Glickman, that he sounded like me. I'm told I have a wrong <laughs> style, style left. Okay? How is that going to play? So w- one of the best interviewers that, uh, interviewees that I did interviews that I did was with Sal Marciano. Sal Marciano for a long time was one of the voices of, of New York sports. Sure. And I told the story about name change and things of that sort. He said when he was growing up, when he was starting out in the industry of uh, people, he grew up in Red Hook section of Brooklyn. People wanted, people told him Sal Marciano, not American enough, but he didn't change his name and he made it. And years later, he ran into his own boyhood hero, Frank Sinatra, who said, who came from Hoboken, the Italian Navy. He says, you know what? I'm very proud of the fact that you didn't change your name. Now, here's my point. Other scholars have studied extensively the whole question of Jews changing their names in order to make it in America. One of the myths or fallacies is you might know from my favorite movie, The Godfather, that when Vito Corleone, Vito Andolini comes to Ellis Island, they change his name to Corleone. That didn't happen. That didn't happen. Jews changed, and Italians and others changed their names later on in order to make it in America. So I'll ask your audience, uh, did they ever hear of Isur Danilovich? That's Kirk Dumbless. He changed his name. As a counterpart, to the name change question. Again, we're moving away from the sports experience. We're talking about American Jewish history here. In 1947, uh, Bess Meyerson was the first and only woman to, Jewish woman, to win the uh, Miss America Prize. She was pressured to change her name, but she refused to. She says, I'm a Bronx girl. People will know who I am. Like Marty Glickman was a Brooklyn fellow, same time contemporaries. And the contrast is, by the way, with his, with Glickman's ne- uh, nemesis, that's Howard Cosell. He thought Howard Cosell had changed his name to make it in America. Truth is, it wasn't so. The family changed the name before Cosell grew up. But Marty Glickman said, you must maintain your name. Now, his great cycle, disciple, of course, is Marv Albert who wasn't born Mauer, Albert, but his name was Alfredic. And they both agreed that that's a hard name to pronounce, but he didn't change it because of 
uh, anti-Semitism or discrimination, etc. So this is a life of triumph, a life of controversy, of difficulties, and Marty transcended it and had all these great disciples who carried his his name forward over the course down to the uh, down to the present present time. So that's the greatness of Marty Glickman. Can I tell you one last story, if you don't mind? Please. Okay. So the book has been out since October third. But in the run-up before the book, I sent uh, galleys to a conservative rabbi in Los Angeles. And uh, he, we was, he was invited in July to speak to the US, uh, USC track club that was about to go to Auschwitz on a consciousness raising tour. And when he, got, when he gave his speech about anti-Semitism and racism, he brought my book with him. And... Uh, the irony or the wonderful piece about this is the coach, one of the coaches of the 1936 Olympic team that sidelined Marty Glickman was Dean Cromwell, who was a supporter of Nazism in America. I was told recently they finally took his name off the field house. Dean Cromwell, remember his name, a, a, a colleague of Avery Brundage. Right. So now in 2023, I, I'm chagrined. I don't know the name of the coach. He decides, not because of Cromwell, but to raise the consciousness of his athletes who aren't Jewish. I think most of them are African-Americans. They're going to Auschwitz. So I was asked recently, if Marty Glickman were still alive, what would he want to know about his life? And I said, well, as this author, I'd love to sell a million books which I'm not going to do, but I, I'm awfully proud of the fact that this book has been used by this rabbi to teach about anti-Semitism back then and the problems Jews face contemporaneously today. So